May it please you and honor you, my sovereign Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our thoughts may be holy. Act in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our work too may be holy. Draw our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that we love but what is holy. Strengthen us, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard us then, O Holy Spirit, that we always may be holy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This evening, tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening, we consider the sign of the cross. The cross itself is a sign. Making the sign of the cross. Invoking the sign of the cross. Invoking the Holy Trinity. In loose terms, this evening, God the Father will enter into our reflections. Tomorrow evening, our Lord and Savior, the second person of the Holy Trinity, for the most part. And in one degree or another, on Tuesday evening, the Holy Spirit will be the object of our focus. We don't forget what we celebrated a week ago on Trinity Sunday. God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are proper ways in which we attribute some activities to one or the other, to God the Father creating, to God the Son being incarnate, suffering, dying, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven. The Holy Spirit sending forth the apostles and inspiring evangelists and popes and many saints. The union of the Holy Trinity is perfect. Hopefully during these moments, these minutes, these hours, our union with God will approach that perfection. That was our Lord's prayer at the Last Supper. The authority of faith when we speak about acting in the name of God, we might tremble, we might hesitate. The first time you see a document on the top of which it simply says, in the name of God, amen, you'll take a second glance. Your heart will skip. It was a few years ago. It was a document from the tribunal, probably an annulment decree, might have been something else, but in big bold letters, larger than any other print on the page, it simply said, in the name of God, amen. It's startling. Who dares speak in the name of God? Who dares govern other people as though with God's authority? Well, Christians do. Because Christ established this church. He founded it on the faith of Peter. If you were to see at the top of the page, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you would think, oh, we're about to pray, aren't we? And it could have said that. But to make the point emphatic that we are acting and speaking in the name of God with his authority, sometimes using fewer words, gets the point across better. And so as baptized Christians... As adopted sons and daughters of God, we act in the name of God collectively as a church, as being members of the body of Christ, 
And so someone's asked you, or will, or you've heard the question being asked, who do you think you are? I think I belong to Christ. I, I think I belong to the church that he founded. That's who I think I am. If I, if I present him, if I represent him badly, then shame on me. If I speak in a way that he would not speak, shame on me. But if I remain silent when he would speak, shame on me. If I refuse to get involved when he would bring about peace, shame on me. Consider the first act of governing. The one who governs first makes you one of his. And so the sacrament of baptism certainly sanctifies us in a way which is more dramatic perhaps than any other sacrament. Here's one who is separated from God and now all of a sudden is holy, is perfectly holy. Sometimes the experience of forgiveness is more dramatic in the confessional. Moved by tears, genuinely making an act of repentance and a firm purpose of amendment, a soul that experiences and understands what it's experiencing and receiving the sanctifying grace of the sacrament of penance has among the most beautiful things a human person could ever experience, but still remains in need of making reparation for those sins. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we take a few shortcuts and assume that I'm sorry are magic words and assume that I am absolved means I have nothing more to worry about. Instead, once we have gone to confession and have been absolved, those sins have stopped, our guilt has stopped, God is no longer treating us as though we are still committing those sins because we have brought them to an end, we have repudiated them, and now become, now begins the work in earnest of repairing the damage that we've done by committing those sins. Part of that is in the specific task of restitution. When we've broken something, we fix it. When we've stolen something, we give it back. But we've done damage to our souls when we commit sins. We've done damage to others spiritually when we commit sins. It's an appropriate time to make mention of how Holy Mother Church, by her authority, communicated to us by the Manual of Indulgences, makes clear what benefit we stand to derive from these spiritual exercises. and especially on the Feast of Corpus Christi. A plenary indulgence is granted to the faithful who piously recite the verses of the Tantum Ergo after the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday during the solemn reposition of the Most Blessed Sacrament, or devoutly participate in a solemn Eucharistic procession held inside or outside a church of greatest importance on the solemnity of the body and blood of Christ. Thirdly, participate religiously in the solemn Eucharistic celebration, which is customarily held at the conclusion of a Eucharistic Congress. 
It might not help you because if you didn't know that the Eucharistic procession carried with it the possibility of a plenary indulgence, then maybe next time you can formulate that intention. But for those who simply spend time in adoration of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament for half an hour, the same plenary indulgence is made available. Among the great and holy people that I met at the Notre Dame Institute here, beginning in the parish hall at St. Lawrence, in addition to Father William Most, was Father Bertrand de Marjorie, one of the great, great, fantastic Jesuits of the 20th century, a renowned theologian in the field of patristics, the study of the ancient church fathers. It was a, it was a boon that he was uh, able to come over during summers and teach for the Notre Dame Institute. By that time, he was already well into his 70s and 80s, had already officially retired, as it were, but was still teaching and giving talks and lectures lots of places. He's memorable for, for three things, most of which is apropos. This beautiful, gentle, brilliant man thought that he could learn something from everyone. And whenever he had a meeting with someone, even if it was to get together with me for a cup of coffee, he had already prepared a list of questions that he was going to ask. I was nobody. Why, why, why was he asking me, uh, an American in his 20s who hadn't really accomplished anything, why was he asking me questions thinking that he could learn something? But it's true that any, any wise person is wise because they learn something from everybody. The second beautiful thing about Father de Marjorie was how he spent his time in retirement. Remember, this is in the 1990s, during the, the great days of Pope John Paul II. And Father de Marjorie would spend his, his days at his Jesuit residence in Paris, reading every papal speech, every papal homily, editing it, correcting it, identifying the mistakes, and sending a fax to the Secretary of State in the Vatican to make sure that they would make the corrections before the text entered into its final and official form in the Acta Apostolica Sedis. Both devotion and reverence for the Holy Father and also tireless effort and service to Him. Very few people, very few people love the church that much. Love the Holy Father that much. And so it's a lesson for all of us to truly love and to listen with filial devotion, not with servile fear. Father DeMarjorie was a great teacher. The third thing to mention is that every summer when he'd come over from Paris and teach at the Notre Dame Institute, he had his favorite plenary indulgence. And he would tell everyone, almost every day it seemed, at every daily Mass homily, a particular thing that you ought to be doing, because the church attaches to it a plenary indulgence. Now certainly, we all could say, well, I can adore our Lord for half an hour today. I don't need, I don't need to do any of those other things in the book. Or I can pray a rosary in, with a group of people before the tabernacle and have a plenary indulgence, possibly, if I'm free from the attachment to sin, of course. So I don't need to do any of those other things. But that's not filial devotion. That's not listening to the church as children. The church 
points out to us every good and beneficial thing that we could do as a loving, as a loving mother. And so we approach, we approach the indulgences that the church offers us as though we're, um, before this incredible cornucopia. We're not satisfied with just one thing all the time. But there's so many things that are good for us. We certainly couldn't do all of them in the course of a day. But whatever we do has to be done with devotion. And so whatever we're doing at any given time, we can only do one thing well. So participating in these spiritual exercises can afford us a plenary indulgence, but you can also just tune me out and adore the Lord for 30 minutes and you'll get the same. Back to faith and God the Father and governing. Who do you think you are? One of my favorite priests of this diocese, Monsignor T.P. Scannell, Thomas Patrick Scannell, who passed away just uh, a day after John Paul II, or two days rather, two days after Pope John Paul II, was famous for many things, but most famous among the youth of St. Michael's Church where he was pastor for decades. Because whenever he would see a group of them, he would ask them, who are you? I'm not going to ask you to answer that question. I'm going to bother Dominic and Jerry and Brendan and Colin and Steve after Matt, after Holy Hour. Who are you? How would you answer that question? Think for a moment. Obviously, don't say anything. Just think. How would you answer that question? Who are you? It's worth pointing out. We're uncomfortable with silence. My ideal at a holy hour when we pray the rosary, for instance, would be to mention the name of the mystery and wait a good long 10, 15 seconds so you can really imagine and visualize what's going on. But whenever I try to do that, people think that I've forgotten the next prayer and they jump right in because we're uncomfortable with silence. So meditate for a moment. Be quiet. Be still. Who are you? More than likely, the way we would answer that question first is we would say our name, right? That's who I am. Well, that's how I'm called. I'm not sure how many languages there are where that question is asked the way we do it in English. What is your name? Most other languages that with which we're familiar, you would ask the question, how are you called? Or how do you call yourself, right? Your name doesn't say who you are. So the question might be posed again, who are you? And you might think, well, I'm, I'm a runner. In which case I would say, you're crazy. No. <laughs> I might. It's tempting. No, sometimes we, we, we think that our, our defining activity, that's who I really am. But that, that describes what you, what you do, what's your favorite thing. Who are you really? And when we, when we think about that, maybe some of us would begin to get to the, the answer that Monsignor Scannell was hoping for when we say, well, I'm, I'm the child of, of David Pollard and Ilsa Pollard. Or you would say, I'm, I'm the child, I'm, I'm the son, I'm the daughter of my parents. Not only identifies what I am as a human being, but who I am, what's unique about me, my identity. All of us who are baptized Christians can simply say, when we are asked, who are you? I am a child of God. 
That's who I am. I am a child of God. God is my father. It was a young lady, my first parish. She had already been in the Nashville Dominicans for some time, hadn't made vows or anything. And so I was doing her marriage preparation, getting ready for the great wedding. I probably shouldn't have told you all that because you could figure out who she is by now, but she wouldn't mind you knowing. And at a certain point in time, just before, sometime before the wedding, in the way that fathers and, and their daughters have conversations before weddings, her father pulled her aside at some, one point and said, you know, I have come to the conclusion that you don't really think of me as your father. And she's stunned. What do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Of course, of course you're my father. And he says, well, I, I get the impression that you think God is your father. And she said, well, yeah, of course. That's, that's how you raised me. Think of that. Think of what would be different about that young person's life that her dear father, who has always regarded her as his little girl, can notice she loves me. She loves God more than she loves me. How wonderful our lives would be changed if, if that were obvious about us too. Some of us might try to put that insight into practice in an in a awkward and clumsy way by being um, dismissive of people, being, uh, being cold to people because we love Jesus. And that's to love God means to love the ones whom he loves. And he loves everybody. And so how is it that someone can be filled with charity and genuinely love everyone, but it's obvious they love God even more than that? That's our task. We're, we're, good at, we're good at reminding people that God is more important than them sometimes. I can't, I can't go there. It's, I'm, I'm going to church tonight. Or I can't, I can't do that. That's wrong. There's so many ways that we do the right thing in the wrong way. And our Lord, please show us the way. No, instead, in the way that St. Paul speaks of being the one who gives God's forgiveness to others and says we have been made ambassadors for Christ, we are all ambassadors for Christ. We all work and act in his name. We already considered earlier today how our Lord commanded the apostles to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The day of your baptism again, a day to remember, a day to write down on the calendar. But think of that formula one more time. Probably when you read or hear Matthew 28, 19, you're thinking that our Lord is simply telling them, instructing them the formula that they are supposed to use when baptism is to be done. Baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But he's also telling them to baptize in the name of God. Baptize with God's authority. Baptize on my behalf. And remember, the sacrament of baptism is so necessary for the salvation of human beings that the church does not require an ordained priest or even an ordained deacon to be the minister of baptism. In ordinary circumstances, it ought to be. But anyone can baptize. 
Anyone can be the minister of the sacrament of baptism. And at that, not just baptized Christians, any human being. So long as they use proper matter, which is water, and the proper form, which is, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and their intention is to do what the church accomplishes by that sacrament, they baptize validly. Many of us already know, have known of of nurses who simply knew that that was part of their training. They knew how to do a baptism in case of an emergency. Recently, I just found out about a Jewish nurse who knew how to do that and did that when it was called upon. All of us can be ambassadors of the sacrament of salvation and much more. What are the last words? The last words that you pray before you witness the consecration at the altar. The choir is usually helping us out. And we say the words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The words about our Lord at the Palm Sunday. Just days before his death. Blessed is he who comes in the name of God. Imagine the revelation when the apostles would realize when exactly, it's hard to pinpoint, after the resurrection, as they were waiting for the resurrection, Oh my goodness, Jesus Christ really is God. Blessed be God who comes in the name of God the Father. But sacred scripture describes that great blessing about so many of us. St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. If what we do is in the state of grace, with good intention, in in harmony with God's will, with wisdom and prudence and charity and faith, hope and love, everything you do can be done in the name of God. The littlest thing, the greatest thing. And as baptized children of God, who have in turn become mothers or fathers, you who have children, can bless them in the name of God. Just as it says in the Psalms, we bless you in the name of the Lord. It's a curious, slightly disquieting topic. But when we consider the activity of the evil one, who will go without being named, the authority of God rules over him. When we read at the beginning of the book of Job, and there is this conversation between God and the evil one, more than likely you probably thought of it as as being uh, cartoonish, strange, perhaps. But what God forbids and makes possible for the evil one to do does not happen. And so it's an interesting facet of the church's ministry and doing spiritual combat, that it's not just souls that are particularly holy, souls that have been blessed with incredible grace, who are in union with our Lord, who are able to have strength in the face of the evil one, and who are able to to convey that grace and that power and protection to others. But it's also people simply with the authority to do so. 
whether it be the pope over the whole church, or the bishop over his whole diocese, or a pastor over his whole parish, or a mom and dad over their household. Those who have divine authority need to wield it to invoke God's protection over those whom they govern. And truly enjoying the authority of God, even when we are unworthy of it, still still has potency. And so when we read about the apostles in the Acts, healing the sick in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, or to the one possessed by a demon, and rather to the demon, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. We, in certain circumstances, when we are responsible for this soul in front of us, probably have greater authority than we realize. And so we turn to the Lord and we ask Him for the grace as we rest here quietly in front of Him to understand the authority that we've been given by virtue of belonging to His church, which is the body of Christ, founded upon the authority of the faith of Peter the fisherman, who was able to profess our Lord, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One, because it had been taught Him from heaven above. We beg You, Lord, to make us more worthy to represent You, to be Your ambassadors, to act in Your name, to bring others into your family to introduce you to others and to govern well that which has been entrusted to us, be it a small piece of your kingdom or a large piece of your kingdom. And we pray especially for those who feel the burden of that authority, for moms and dads who are overwhelmed by the responsibility of their children by newly ordained priests and retired priests and everyone in between who understands that they will never be worthy of their role. For everyone who works in the church, for everyone who acts on behalf of the church, give us the confidence of knowing that what you have revealed to us through Christ, through the apostles, through the church, is true. With serenity we can proclaim the truth, with compassion for those who disagree with mercy and understanding for those who are confused. Understanding that to know is not just simply to hear and to memorize, but to see. Open their ears and break down every, every barrier between their ear and their heart that they might believe what they hear about you to be true. Help us to be the ones who convey that message, who pray for them, who do penance for them, to pray for the ones who don't pray, to adore you for the ones you do not adore, to believe in you for the ones you do not believe, to never give up on the souls that seem even most lost, to know that everyone belongs to you as your creation, that everyone ought to belong to you by adoption. Help us, dear Lord, to bring everyone to worship and honor and obey your Heavenly Father. Help us to understand, dear Lord Jesus, that when you stand at the altar, you invite all of us to stand 
with you by the power of the Holy Spirit to adore and worship and honor God the Father. You are God here present before us. You wish to bring us to heaven to be in the presence of God the Father, the one who adopted us before before we even knew him. And we thank you for being in our presence so that we can understand what it means truly to be human without sin, without fault. And we can begin to understand what we are to become, to become like you and to be united to you and through you to be united to the Father and the Spirit. Help us, dear Lord, to wield your authority with kindness, with wisdom, with patience, and with courage. Send your Holy Spirit that all that you hope to accomplish and bring to fruition in us come to pass. Breathe in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our thoughts may be holy. Act in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our work too may be holy. Draw our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that we love but what is holy. Strengthen us, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard us then, O Holy Spirit, that we always may be holy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.